Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash I heart. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Don't What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are coming to you all three days deep in the NBA Finals. So, as we have made tradition throughout this postseason, at about the midway point of each series, we have handed out some awards to players who have stood out in good, bad, and ugly ways throughout these series. At this point, of course, we are down to the one series, but we have plenty of awards to hand out. So, Logan, I'll throw it over to you first. Who is the first guy you want to shout out with an award here today? Uh, I wanted to keep my first two pretty simple, and so I handed out uh, MVP awards for both teams through these first three games, and uh, I wasn't expecting to be saying this through three games in this series. The MVP, in my eyes, for the Phoenix Suns is DeAndre Ayton, Um, and I think that was, I think his impact on this series was exemplified uh, in game three against Milwaukee, and I'm going to touch on this in a later award um, uh, about Monty Williams. Ayton played four minutes in that second half of Game 3, and I think it's the sole reason that they lost that game. Uh, Phoenix cut the lead down to six in the third quarter. It looked like they were going to storm back. They had barely... The Suns barely, you know, were just holding on into that game, and I keep waiting. Monty, put Ayton in. Put Ayton in. Cam Johnson has has held his own. He has done enough to, you know, keep them in this ballgame, and... We just never saw him, and I think that right there, the stretch that we saw of Giannis dominating the Suns' small ball lineup shows how effective Aiden has been at, you know, just keeping the lid on Giannis. Like, there is no one down the rest of this roster that can hold him. When Aiden is off the floor, the Suns are a different, worse team, and I don't know, first two games, he dominates the boards, he dominates the interior, no one can slow him down, and even in game three, Carson, you saw just as I did, early in that game in the first and second quarter, it seemed like at will, the Suns were getting those switches with uh, Pat Connaughton, with uh, whoever was on the floor, they would just run one screen, Aiden would be in the paint with nobody else on him, and it's like the Suns' offense completely turned away from that. I think Aiden is the Suns' most consistent offense. I think when he's on the floor, they are a different a different team defensively. They have someone that can competently stop Giannis. I just think this team is a different... They're just different with him off the floor uh, than with on him. They are a, just a completely different team, and 
in this series, you know, I don't think this has been true for the entirety of the playoffs. I think CP3 and D-Book have been so much more valuable for the playoffs as a whole. But in this individual series, when you need a Giannis stopper and somebody who can attack mismatches like that, I think Aiden's the most valuable player in these finals for Phoenix. There's definitely a case to be made. I think that each of the three Sun stars have had their moments within each of these games where they've looked like maybe the most important player on the team. But Aiden is tremendously important here, of course. And I had a different award for him highlighting specifically what I think he needs to do. But you are right about how crucial he has been. And I just really look at that Giannis matchup now that the Bucks are leaning more and more on Giannis at the five and going a little bit further away from Brook Lopez, who hasn't played 30 minutes in any game in this series, is averaging about 24 minutes a game, I think. And when the Bucks have played... Their starters with Giannis at the five, and then you throw Pat Connaughton in there. Throughout these playoffs, they have been very, very good on both ends. They're plus 13.5 points per 100 with those lineups, and we have seen throughout this series, when Aiton is off the floor and Giannis is out there, the Bucks get or the Suns get shredded. And I think that you can look at that in his importance on the defensive end, and I'll touch on that in a minute when I talk about how incredible Giannis has been, but I'm looking at the offensive end there as well, because you mentioned it. In that first half... There was a lot of DeAndre Ayton offense, but it was interesting because he attacked a couple of switches when he had those small guys on him, but also some of it was just he knocked down face-up jumpers, turnarounds that don't always go for him. And when I'm looking at Brook Lopez being off the floor, so there is only one guy who can physically, athletically hang with DeAndre Ayton out there in Giannis Antetokounmpo, who the Bucks are willingly switching out onto the perimeter to hang with CP or Devin Booker. This is where... Aiton needs to attack those switches and specifically needs to get deep position inside because the reason he's taking, in my opinion, all those face-ups, those turnarounds, is he just shoots the ball from where he catches it because he doesn't trust his handle. He doesn't put the ball on the floor almost ever. You very rarely see a DeAndre Ayton deep back down. It's either he catches the ball around the rim, which he does the majority of the time, and he puts it up there, or if he catches it 12, 14, 15 out, he's going to put up one of those tougher jumpers. So to me... The second he gets one of those smaller guys on him, put your back to him, get within six, seven feet of the bucket, even closer if you can, and then put up that shot. And I think that that is a crucial role for him on the offensive end on top of how important he is defensively hanging with Giannis. So what do you think about when he takes those face-up jumpers with bigger guys on him? Should he just X that out completely out of his game or should he keep taking them if he's knocking them down? I personally don't like them very much. This was a gripe I had with Aiden throughout some of this season and throughout his first couple seasons in the NBA. He's a 30-something percent shooter for mid-range, and he's probably better than that in these playoffs, but that's who he is. He's a guy who, yeah, has enough skill to where, okay, if he takes a couple face-up jumpers a game, maybe you won't off yourself, but it should never be a primary weapon for him. And personally, I just don't think it's great offense. Like, I don't need DeAndre Ayton creating for himself. I never have. I don't think this offense does. They have enough creators. They have enough shooters. They just need him as that dominant interior force. And if he is creating for himself, I mean, easy back-to-the-basket stuff where you're just attacking a mismatch where you're physically dominant. So, I do want to take this opportunity to talk about the guy who he is responsible for handling on the other end because you can call it the MVP award for the Bucs. I'm going to call it the Shakrates award, and I'm giving it to Giannis Antetokounmpo, a little bit of a Shaq Greek crossover there for you because if you just look at Giannis's production throughout this series, it, it is as close to Shaquille O'Neal production as we have seen since Shaq himself was walking the NBA. And yeah, that's always been the regular season comp, but 
Shaq was his best self in the finals. If you're looking at that Lakers stretch from 2002, I didn't think that would be the case for Giannis, but it consistently has in games two and three of this series. You look at his numbers overall, 34, 14, and five on 62.5% from the field, taking 16 free throws a game. Compare that to Shaq from 2002 in the finals. He was 36, 16, 3.5, 59.5% from the field, and 16 free throws a game. Like, it's almost identical. Of course, it's crazy that Shaq did that for three years. Giannis has done it for three games, but it's still remarkable. He's the first guy to have back-to-back 40 and 10 games in the finals since Shaq, and the most Shaq-esque part of it, because obviously, stylistically, they're very different in how they generate those high-probability looks in the paint. But Giannis is consistently getting to that restricted area in these last couple games more convincingly, I would say, than in most of the previous series. Overall in the finals, he's got 56 field goal attempts. 30 of them are inside of five feet, and he's 26 of 30 on those attempts. Just brutally efficient. He's only taken nine threes in total, despite the fact that through two games, the Suns were pretty much guarding him with eight in the same way that like the Nets guarded him with Blake Griffin and that they were just having him drop back in the paint, give him that runway, but he wasn't settling. He was being physically dominant. He was using his quickness, his strength, and his skill on the inside. You compare that to against Brooklyn through three games, he had taken 16 threes, almost twice as many, but I do completely agree with you and how crucial Aiden is because Part of this dominance is coming in the non-Aiton minutes. Game two, Giannis was phenomenal if Aiton was out there or if he wasn't. But game three, we saw him shred anybody else who they tried to put on him. And I will say, Jay Crowder trying to guard him is a joke in my opinion. I mean, Bridges doesn't do it much, but I still think that that's not a matchup that he can handle. Like, you just cannot sit Aiton when Giannis is playing. And they were forced to because of his foul trouble in game three. But I will say also... Early in Game 3, like from the beginning almost, they were using Aiton more as a help defender and putting Crowder on Giannis on the perimeter, whereas in Games 1 and 2, Aiton was that primary defender. I think Aiton has to be that primary defender. He's strong enough. He uh, has the physical tools, and nobody else does. Giannis makes everybody else look like a child out there. So props to him. Uh, This is the best basketball he's ever played. And for a long time, I've talked about how His value can depreciate in the postseason, and that was true historically. I mean, we saw him not play up to his maximum potential both times that the Bucs got bounced early the couple years before this. He didn't play all that well against the Heat in the first round this year, and he did not get off to a pretty start against the Nets, but he's figured it out now. He's playing to his strengths time and again, and if Aiton is not his primary defender, which I expect him to be, I expect the Suns to switch back because it would be kind of wild if they didn't. He is going to shred them if they don't, and he very well may shred them even if they do play him as well as pretty much anybody could. Yeah, I agree with a lot of the points you made, and another one I want to touch on. Um, In those non-eight minutes as well, they weren't just running Giannis. It was Giannis and Brooke Lopez in those minutes, and they just killed him. Like, Jay Crowder was tasked with not only trying to guard Brooke Lopez in the corner— when there was a shot that was put up, Lopez was getting that board and going back up with it, or Giannis was getting it. Like, they just got— killed I don't know if the key is you got to play DeAndre Ayton 48 minutes or just line him up with Giannis but you cannot have Giannis out there and not have Ayton another thing I want to touch on in Giannis's big numbers uh Shaq like numbers in these playoffs uh leads me to another one of my award uh, awards and that's the free throw total um I agree he's been the MVP uh, of this series but for this award uh I'm gonna call it the uh how do you pronounce that guy's name from the O2 finals is it Tim Donaghy yeah Don Donaghy 
Yeah, we're handing out the Tim Donaghy Award here uh, for these finals, and it's just because of the uh, the free throw total from Game 3. It wasn't that I have a trouble with guys shooting a lot of free throws because we saw that discrepancy back in Phoenix, but I felt like the refs back in Phoenix were so much more lenient uh, and let these guys play so much more physical. Like, Cam Johnson, to me, defended Giannis just about as well as you can for a guy his size and his athleticism. Like, And the refs are just blowing all kinds of whistles down there to send Giannis to the line. I get that as a big part of his game, and I get that that has to get called sometimes. I just thought that the refs were a little whistle-happy uh, in Milwaukee this first game over here, and I didn't like how it turned out. Giannis shoots 17 free throws, as you mentioned. The Bucks shoot 26 total. The Suns shoot 16 free throws total. Again, a part of this has to do with Monty not putting Aiden back out there for the late stages of the game and getting him sent to the line, just not having an interior presence um, of Giannis. But uh, to me, there was just such a... This discrepancy was just so much larger, and I thought the refs needed to be a little more lenient. I like physical games. I like when the refs let them play. And to me, a lot of possessions, they just kind of took out of the Suns' hands and sent Giannis to the line. That's interesting. I do think that they were slightly more willing with the whistle in Game 3. I also don't think that that mattered, though. And I think that the Tim Donaghy, Tim Donaghy comparison is a little extreme, although I will say we all know who was tied up in those investigations, Scott Foster, and here he is 15, 20 years later, still calling games. What a scholar and a gentleman he is. But I honestly think that the free throw disparity is related to another one of my awards, which is that the Milwaukee Bucks are winning my keys to the series pretty much and some of the keys that you laid out as well. They're down two games to one, but if you look at some of the things we highlighted, I looked at the battle on the boards because I said the Bucks have been the best rebounding team throughout these playoffs. The Suns have been fine there, but outside of DeAndre Ayton, they lack another really impactful rebounding presence. And if you look at this right now, the Bucs are leading 40-23 to 23 on the offensive glass throughout this series. That's a massive disparity, almost doubling them. If you look at what we talked about with the pace of play, trying to get out in transition and be effective there, the pace isn't fast in this series. I mean, it's still playoff basketball, but it is above what both teams had played at up to this point, slightly above what the Bucs had and a couple ticks above what the Suns had. And in fast break, the Bucs have been able to capitalize more often. They're winning fast break points 50-33. to 33. They have dominated the paint in the last two games, which you laid out as a key. They've been a paint-dominant team throughout the playoffs, throughout the season, because of Giannis Antetokounmpo more than anything else. But in Game 1, you were frustrated with the fact that they went away from that a little bit. Game 2, they come out, score 26 points in the paint in the first quarter. Like, they were just hammering it in there time and again and again. And then had another 54 paint points in Game 3. So, I just think that's interesting because, again, these are the things that we laid out as being possible difference makers. And the Suns are up 2-1, to one, but the Bucks are winning in a lot of those different categories. And I don't know if this held up. Another, th And again, like, I just think that yeah, we keep coming back to Giannis and Aiton as the, as the primary focus of this series. I don't know if this stat held up uh, because I stopped watching with like six minutes left in the fourth quarter because the game was over. Um, through three quarters, the Bucks had 20 second chance points and the Suns had zero. That can't happen. I mean, you're going to lose every game when you get just bullied on the boards like that. And... I don't know, it's weird, because it wasn't just in like nine, eight minutes. It didn't matter really who they threw out there. Kaminsky got bodied. Like, 
What do the Suns do in non-eight minutes, I guess is the question, bro. I totally agree. And I think it's a really tough question to answer. And we've seen them put Kaminsky out there a bit. I haven't enjoyed those minutes at all. I don't think putting a 6'10 guy out there who's not like really an imposing presence really matters. Like, yeah, I guess it's more height, obviously, than 6'7 Jay Crowder, but he's not a more impactful defender. He's not as strong. He's not as gritty. He's not as smart there. I think what it has to be is just do not play DeAndre Ayton in a minute where Giannis is not on the floor and do not rest him in a minute when Giannis is on the floor. Like match their minutes up exactly like they did with him and Jokic because you need him out there every second. And then you mentioned how in some of those non-8 minutes it was even doubly painful because you have Brooke and Giannis going to work. To me, you can tolerate Brooke Lopez attacking a small ball lineup. Like sometimes he will cook guys there, but also sometimes he'll just put up the hooks and he'll put up the little turnaround jumpers and they won't go. And maybe they'll kill you on the glass, but like is Frank Kaminsky really going to help there all that much? I don't think so. So I believe in what we said last time, which is play your best guys. Don't play Frank Kaminsky because Frank Kaminsky is a bad basketball player, but it's going to be ugly. There is no winning those minutes. And do you think that Sarich is really changing that? Because honestly, it's made it more painful for them on the offensive end. And Dario is, again, a relatively big body who can compete on the defensive end. But like, the Suns haven't had a real backup big all year. And I feel like that's kind of the first time right now that we've actually seen that matter. Yeah, um, I don't think Dario makes that big a difference. I think he's a little more mobile than Frank Kaminsky, and that definitely helps. Again, I think he helps the Suns get out and transition a little more. I think he does make a difference. Like he's he's definitely an improvement over Kaminsky, but he's not stopping Giannis. But I, <laughs> I don't know, bro. If we go down a weird reality here, and at the end of this series, we're saying that if Dario Sarge was healthy, the Suns would have won this series. I just I don't want to live in that world. Um, I don't think he makes that big a difference, but he does make some. Um, I think you're exactly right. I think that they just have to. Monty Williams has to just run those minutes, and that's you know what? I'm going to get into that award. Um. I'm going to give out the Coach of the Year award uh, to Monty Williams. And I mean this genuine for what he did in Game 2, and I mean this extremely sarcastically for what happened in Game 3. Uh, we all saw that clip that circulated around on, uh, I saw it on Instagram, on Twitter, everybody's promoting it, where uh, Aiden was really down on himself um, in Game 2. And, oh man, this is why Monty's Coach of the Year. He gives him a great pep talk. Aiden gets back out there. He's back on top of his game the rest of the way. And then in Game 3, it just, I can't get it through my head, Carson, because it is so obvious to a viewer like you or me sitting there on our couch watching the game. Aiden plays three minutes in the third quarter in one minute in the fourth. And during the entire stretch of the third quarter, man, when they hit that three-pointer with five minutes left and cut it to six, I just thought to myself, just call a timeout next possession, get Aiden back out there, and you can go win this game and put this series away, Monty. And he didn't do it. He let Aiden sit out there. He let Cam Johnson continue running the five. He let all of these small ball guys just get big bodied. And Giannis literally, in five minutes, I didn't think it was possible, Carson. I thought we were at least going to have a competitive game going into the fourth. In five minutes, Giannis, what, he put it out to, it was like a 15-point lead heading into the fourth. It wasn't even wasn't even a game at that point. Um, So my next award goes to Monty for a great coaching performance in game two. And an absolutely head-scratching one in Game 3. I think, personally, 
Devin Booker could have shot a little better and put the Suns in a better position in that game, but I think Monty Williams lost it with his decisions. That's interesting. I think, obviously, it's always tough when you have a guy who's as consistently in foul trouble as Aiton, and he picked up that fourth pretty quick, and he picked up that fifth pretty quick. So I get the hesitation to play him to a certain extent. At the same time, when he ends up not even picking up that sixth foul in this game, it's only in 24 minutes that he has the five, but I don't think you can look back on that without regretting it because it's not the time to be conservative, especially when you're in that stretch of the game when you're trying to fight back. Like I understand the instinct to protect him because you're thinking, okay, if we're in this later, we're going to need him. But of course, they just never got to be actually in the game. And there is no other answer for Giannis, as we've said. I did just learn by looking at his basketball reference that Kaminsky's actually seven foot. He does not feel seven feet tall. He certainly doesn't play seven feet tall, but like that's a little bit surprising to me. But I think Monty's a very good basketball coach, of course. I thought that that clip from Game 2 was pretty awesome. I will agree with you, though, that it's tough to fully judge him and say terrible decision because, like, if this was still a competitive game with nine minutes left in the fourth or whatever, maybe he plays them those full nine minutes even with the five fouls and just says, go out there and make your impact. And if that were the case, maybe we would be deriding... Monty for playing Aiton in the third quarter if he had done that and Aiton fouls out and then it's like, what are you doing, right? So it's results-based, of course. But given how the results played out, I do agree with you that could have been handled better, especially in such a crucial stretch of the game where you do have hope for, you know, the first time in a minute after just that devastating second quarter and then it gets zapped right out of you by the guy who you have something of an answer to just being completely and utterly unstoppable. I'll throw out another coach award here. It's for the other guy. And this is the just stop it, bro. Stop playing with me. I know this is a joke, so just cut it out award to Mike Budenholzer for playing Jeff Teague 35 minutes in total in this series. I mean, what the hell is going on, Logan? What is going on? Why is he on my TV screen? Why is Jeff Teague on my TV screen? How much is Bud being paid to play him? Can we investigate this? Does Jeff hold some sort of sensitive personal information about Bud? Perhaps why he always looks so confused during games, why he's so scraggly, how he has retained his head coaching job. Something very, very fishy and perhaps even sinister is going on here because Jeff Teague is terrible. He sucks. He had one good moment in these playoffs in that final game against the Hawks when he happened to luckily make three threes, probably had his eyes closed and was just praying that they went in. But like... I don't know what really I need to say beyond this. Like, you can look at the numbers. In the playoffs, they're 16.4 points per 100 worse when he plays. And yeah, that's like not a huge sample size, but it's a really big number. It's an ugly number. And of course, they were worse when he played in the regular season. In this series, he's 2 of 9, 1 of 3 from deep, has a whopping 2 assists, 2 turnovers, He's putting up 2.3 points per game in 12 minutes a game. Like, if you were playing him heavy starter minutes, 36 minutes a game, that equates to seven points in that time. Like, it's Jeff Teague, man. He's washed. He's not a good decision maker. He's not impactful on either end. If you're going to get anything from him, it's pure shooting, and that is come and go with him, and I would rather just play Connaughton Forbes extra minutes. Like, what are you relying on here? Point Jeff Teague? to run the game in stretches because he's not doing that. So why is he playing? Play the better shooters, play the impactful defenders, play anybody but Jeff Teague, bud, or else 
I am going to write a letter to Adam Silver requesting an investigation into all of this because I'm not buying that this is a basketball decision because if it is, Bud is really worse at his job than any of us ever could have dreamed of. No, you're exactly right. Jeff Teague's role in this in this lineup is as a catch-and-shooter. And if you're going to play a catch-and-shooter who is a non-impact defender, just put Bryn Forbes out there. We saw point Jeff Teague, Carson. We saw him in Boston. That man couldn't get downhill, and when he did get to the rack, he was blowing wide-open layups. Jeff Teague sucks. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest... Uh, I think the biggest side of the floor where you're losing something is defensively. When he gets put on Chris Paul or Devin Booker, I just throw my hands up. I know they're about to serve the man a bucket. Devin Booker has turned that man around so many times in the series. I thought about giving him the, I don't know, man, the, uh, the here's a map award. Like, Jeff Teague is clueless defensively. Booker and Paul spin him around relentlessly. He should not be playing in this series. I completely agree. Um, also, I want to touch on your point about Bud's physical appearance. He looks like he looks like a you know like a fifty seven year old offensive line coach that's kind of been uh you know out of work for a while, hadn't shaved, mm-hmm. didn't buy a new razor, just kind of sits on his couch and drinks at night, doesn't really do anything else, takes care of the dog. Um, He'd be one scrawny old line coach. I don't. Coach Bud's kind of beefy. I don't know. Maybe scrawny is the right word. Just small. He's not a big fellow. Coach Bud looks like he's six four, bruh. Okay, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everybody just looks small in the scope of things because they're out there on a basketball court. I will say this. I mean, if we are just doing a simple, logical (laughs) reasoning thing here, as Logan is completely shocked, Bryn Forbes is a career 41% three-point shooter. He was 45% from deep this year. Jeff Teague is a career 36% three-point shooter. This was a career year for him, but like it's small sample size. Shooting at some points in his career was one of the question marks. I don't think it still is, but he's just not as good as Bryn Forbes in any way. Logan, why don't you share with the people what you just found that was so shocking? Coach Bud is like Rey Mysterio's size, bruh. It's like 5'9"? He's 5'9", 165 pounds. All right. Let's just say I was a little closer with that one, wasn't I? Well, you would know. You're the guy who's 6'4", bruh. <laughs> Yeah, we've got a sense. We can look down on little guys like Bud and laugh. But, yeah, he gets the just stop it, bro, stop playing with me. I know this is a joke, so just cut it out award. And I will give an honorable mention to Monty for that award as well for Frank Kaminsky having played 18 minutes. It's different circumstances. I get it. Like, you want to have a big body out there. He wouldn't be playing normally. But the Suns are also 16 points per 100 worse with him in these playoffs, and he is just not a good basketball player on either end. So, there's our coaching segment, I guess. What do you have next? Uh, I'm going to give another award to a buck, and uh, it's the Merry Christmas Award because his last name is Holiday. Uh, I'm going to give it to Drew, man. Uh, he played a really good Game 3, and it wasn't just shooting. He was knocked down, but he looked... I don't know, man. It wasn't even just Drew. I'll give credit to Chris Middleton, too. I hope you got an award laid out for him. Uh, but Drew looked so much more confident in his game. He wasn't hesitating to pull up jumpers. He was trying to get his own shot if that was the three-pointer. Uh, he got a switch on Cam Johnson. He was just he was attacking, man. It's a different Drew Holiday. And the credit I'll give him most for, uh, I said this in a TikTok I made before Game 3. At that point, Drew was holding Devin Booker to one of nine shooting uh, through two games. Drew was on Devin Booker a lot here in Game 3. He was stifling. He was gritty. I don't know, man. Before the playoffs, I said that I didn't know if Drew Holiday would make my cut as an All-NBA defender. I was wrong. Drew's looked excellent in this series, and I think I've underestimated him 
maybe all season, maybe all playoffs long, he looked a lot better in Game 3, uh, moving the rock around, uh, out of the pick and roll. He just looked so much more confident and improved. I don't know if it was because he was playing at home, but um, Drew heard our criticisms, and he stepped up big time in Game 3. Obviously, Giannis was the biggest reason why, but he doesn't get this job done without Drew or Chris, uh, but Holiday played so much better and made a massive impact defensively. Absolutely. I thought he was honestly even more remarkable in Game 2 defensively. Like, he had a couple of moments in that one where I was just like, this guy really does make a case for best perimeter defender in basketball, certainly compared to the physical tools that other guys in that conversation have, like a Ben Simmons, like a Tease. You know, he's doing this at 6'3", and he can still get into the post. Nobody can move him out of there. He can jump past his forced turnovers there. He can block shots if he times it right. He had two steals and two blocks in that game too, and he blocked some big guy at one point. I don't remember who it was, but it was a pretty darn impressive moment. But of course, the offense is spotty, and like the playmaking has been consistently great. Shout out to him for that. If we just go through his assist numbers game by game since that series began, begun against Atlanta, 10, 7, 12, 9, 13, 9, 9, 7, 9. Like that kind of consistent diming and ability to control the game and stretches and set up his teammates. Drew has not always had that. So he deserves props for that, but it comes and goes with the shots. Games one and two, he's one of seven from deep. He's 11 of 35 overall. And then in game three, he goes five of 10 from deep. But I just think the thing with him as we've touched on so many times over and Holiday, is their collective inconsistency. In game two, they were terrible and the Bucs lost. In game one, Middleton was ter- oh, excuse me, Middleton was pretty good. Holiday was terrible though, and they lost. And if you look at some of their ugliest nights from fr- throughout the playoffs, I tweeted this after game two, but game two of the finals, they were 12 of 37 combined, Middleton and Holiday. Game four of the Eastern Conference Finals, they were 12 of 36 combined. Game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals, which they managed to win miraculously because the Nets had one of their three best players, they were 14 of 49 combined. Game one of the Eastern Conference Semis, they were 11 of 42 combined. And those are just the games in these playoffs when they've both been completely off. There have been other ones where Holiday has been hideous, but Middleton was good or Middleton was off and Holiday was really good. Like, you just can't have that kind of inconsistency from your second and third best players offensively. We've talked about it over and over again, but this is the question for me, man, because we can give props to Drew for his good moments, as we should, and Game 3 was one of those good moments. We can give props to Middleton, but down the stretch, what is your confidence level in both of those guys to actually play their best basketball? Oh, it's not very high. I mean, like you said, it comes and goes. We've seen it too many times. I'm confident in them at home. I think we see a really good game for Middleton and Holiday next one because they're going to be in Milwaukee. Um, that being said, I want to ask you, Carson, Like, when's the last time we have seen a championship winner with like this unreliable uh, second and third guy? Like, What is it, like the Lakers in, in 2010? Like in 09 with Gasol and Metal World Peace? Like, I, I don't know, man. Like, I don't feel like we've seen... Just a team with, uh, they have to rely on such unreliable guys. That's an interesting question. I think that you can look back and say, okay, the 2011 Mavs, for example, were a one-star team, but Jason Terry really stepped up relative to expectations, balled out. And you can look at maybe the 06 Heat and say, okay, Shaq was a star on that team. He didn't play all that great in the playoffs. 
still Shaq is your second best guy. I look up and down, and there's not many where I think they have guys who you consider stars. Like, they're not considered one-man shows. They have other all-stars, all-star caliber guys on their team. And every night, it's such a game of roulette with them. It's such a guessing game. I'm looking down this list and like, I don't know, man. There have been weird teams, but again, not teams like this where you expect guys to show up, they don't, and they still find a way to win. Generally, those are the teams that lose, and that is certainly concerning for Milwaukee because I will say, my confidence level going forward in either of these guys can't be high. Like, I can't ever say that they're going to suck, but am I going to bet on them? in these final four games to play at their maximum potential and be outstanding for four straight games or three out of the four games? Absolutely not. So props to Drew for his defense, his playmaking, but as we've said time and again, the shooting is just not consistent enough. And with my next award, I will call out a guy on the other team who needs to be more consistent with his shooting. I think that you think I'm going to talk about Jay Crowder, but I'm not. This is the now is the time to be Mamba award and it goes to Devin Booker. Logan, we are friends of book on this show. Devin Armani Booker, the legend, the wonderful basketball player that he is. But we have to be fair because I can't sit here and say that he hasn't been good in these finals. Like game one, he found a way to be productive. Game two, he was pretty damn exceptional. He had a stretch after a tougher start where he was just great. But overall, his last eight games, 36% from the field. And that's the thing is in these three finals games, Game two, he was efficient, 12 of 25. Game one, eight of 21. And last night in game three, just completely off, three of 14, 10 points, the kind of game that is just really, really tough to stomach. But again, over those last eight games, going back to the Clippers series when he also really labored to score, 36% from the field, 29% from three, 33% from mid-range, what you consider to be his money shot, 39.4% inside of eight feet. That's a crazy stat to me where even those inside looks aren't falling. So it's kind of just getting to the line where he's been able to get a certain level of efficiency as a scorer. And then he's had a good game or two in that stretch, but he is laboring to score for the most part. He is taking tough shots and he takes tough shots more than other people, but he's taking like almost exclusively tough shots and they aren't falling consistently enough. And I will say that I do think there's another person who is partly culpable in this. I talked after last series about how Book needed to find more ways to get involved in the offense to where it couldn't just be pick and roll and isolation where he's bringing the ball up himself because that's part of what makes him great. But the other part of what makes him great is the versatility coming off of screens, off the catch, out of the post, as a cutter, all the different ways in which he can attack. And I still don't think he's gotten ample opportunities there in this series. And I think part of that falls on Chris Paul because... I think Chris Paul is playing weirdly in these finals. Like, I mean, I can't really sit here and criticize him. He's putting up like 25 and 9 on 57% from the field, 50% from three. But everybody always talks about CP controls the game. Look at what Chris Paul can do in commanding the game. And I think that that's absolutely true. I think he has some of the most special command of the game ever. But there are a few moments in which I think as a point guard, particularly with your skill set, where everybody calls you the truest point guard in so long, the point god, you have to get other people involved, particularly your fellow star. And in game two down the stretch, when Book had actually been really, really good, 
Who was it who decided every single possession, I'm going to run pick and roll or I'm going to isolate? It was Chris Paul, and he was really bad. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I can only recall him making one of like five or six shots down the stretch in that game. He had a turnover or two. I know he had six in the game as a whole. Like that's a spot where you can have the ball in your hands, but get the ball to Devin Booker. Use yourself as a decoy because people are so terrified of you in that pick and roll in an isolation and say, let me get the ball to you in your spots. Game three is another instance where it shouldn't have to be Book just taking half his shots from beyond the arc, hoping that one of them falls or trying to create for himself over and over again. Find him. Find him in his spot. Get him the ball when he's moving without it. And we just haven't seen enough of that. So I think first and foremost, obviously, this is on Book. It's up to him to find a way to make shots, to be efficient. But I also think CP, as great as he has been at elevating basically everybody else out there on this roster in this series, because like he is still without a question, making this offense run pretty smoothly overall, I think he could do a solid and help book a little bit more by, when he's off, getting him the ball in his spots and letting him be something other than just a perimeter primary ball handler. Because it feels like when book does have the chance, CP just says, okay, this is your possession. Like, you can be the point guard for this possession. Or if he's off the floor, it's just book is the point guard for a few possessions. And I don't love that. That's okay in stretches. That can't be everything, though. What do you think about all that? Yeah, um... I want to touch on that point that you made about game two uh, and how Chris Paul played. Uh, they were re- both really good in the third quarter. D-Book shoots five of nine. Paul goes four of five. In that fourth, like you mentioned, D-Book was still on fire. Uh, he shoots three of four all from behind the arc. CP shot two of eight in that fourth quarter. You're exactly right. Like, you can't just uh, you can't just take over the game like that. I think, though, the book part about him being better is where you lose me a bit. Now, I think the numbers that you laid out, that's atrocious. That's D-Book has to be better. But I don't know, man. I felt like in Game 3, yes, Booker didn't have the numbers. He wasn't playing like a different game. Like, Booker still played like himself. He got to his spots. He was running out of the pick and roll. His shot just wasn't falling. And, like, I guess I have to hold him accountable for that. But because we are so results-based... I just didn't feel like Booker played that bad. He just couldn't get the lid off of the basket. And again, when it comes to guys with his skill set and how they play, it's going to be hard because all of his shots are fading away from the elbow. All of his shots are turnarounds, uh, you know, with somebody on him. But I just, I just think that's how a guy like him is going to perform. He's going to be inconsistent because he has to take the take and make those tough shots. So who do you think it? Who do you think it lies on more? Is it? Do you put it more on Book's shoulders? Oh, 100%. Like, it is on Book, first and foremost. I just think the CP element of it is interesting because he very clearly has in his mind, I'm the best player on this team, I'm our best closer. And right now, he's playing like both of those are true, but he wasn't in Game 2, and he still had that mindset, and that I did not like very much. But I agree with you. I mean, Book missed shots that he could have made in Game 3. I just think... He always needs to find those counters, and although I still trust him completely, I believe that he can turn it up down the stretch in this series. He's got a tough matchup here when Drew is on him. Whatever other perimeter defender is on him is still always a more than capable defender, and this is an extended stretch in which, even if he's been able to put up the raw numbers, he hasn't had that efficiency as a scorer, and that's obviously what you need to drive winning basketball. So the numbers for this series are skewed by that rough game three. I would not have criticized him through games one and two. I thought he was good. 
But I do want to see that consistent, efficient production from him down the stretch because this is where he has to be his best, and it's time to go Mamba on him. And I think you're right about pointing the finger at CP3, not just as a closer, but in minutes that he shares with Book where he takes over as a point. Uh, CP3 still has unwillingness to play as that off-ball guy. And I'm not even... I don't even think it's just CP3 sometimes, man. It seems like in minutes with Book, it's like guys just want to stand around and ball watch because they've done it for so long. Like... When campaign is on the floor, you'll see a lot of possessions where they just dump it off to book and he just gets in the mid-range. They're just four guys standing around the perimeter, not moving at all. And maybe that's a part of Book's problem that we need to see more movement and passing to his other guys, like trusting guys to do more. Um, in that, I want to give out another award because I think a guy that the Suns can trust to do a lot more um, in the rest of this series, I think it's Cam Johnson. I think that if we're going to point a finger at a role guy that you know, plays his role pretty well, but can ascend to another ceiling. I think it is Cam, just because he showed us that he's capable of doing a lot more in Game 3, not just on the defensive end, where I think he was capable against Giannis. Again, it's not a matchup that I love, but I think Cam can hold his own to an extent against him. Offensively, man, damn. Cam with the ball in his hands a little more, getting to the rack. Um, He's always such a smart cutter, and his shot's falling. Like, I don't know, man. If CP3's cold, if these other guys are cold, man, I'd give the ball to Cam and let him try to create, let him try to just do more because I trust him too. He showed me a lot, and especially in uh, in Game 3, especially the third quarter, uh, he had 10 points, almost had 12. Uh, for that, I am going to give Cam Johnson uh, the Pedro Serrano Award. Uh, I know you remember that scene, Carson, from Major League. Um, Cohen is good on this, uh, Cam Johnson, uh, big ball, and... Um, <laughs> I just think I think the Suns need to trust him a little more, um, and I think he can be so much more than a role player um, in however many games we have in the rest of the series. He showed me a lot in that third quarter. I completely agree. I mean, Cam has been balling out, and he is part of my next award, which is the potential finals heroes. And I laid out three different guys for the Suns who I can see filling that role, and Cam may have the least significant minute load of that group because he's not a starter, but I completely agree with you as far as the fearlessness. And I think he has a little bit of a game off the bounce. Like he can get to that floater. I don't think I look to him as like a primary creator, but he's a fearless shooter. Obviously that dunk was just freaking electric in game three highlight of the game for the Suns. But the two other guys who I have to look at are Mikael Bridges and Jay Crowder. Bridges, I think is the easiest to make the case for because I think that he is clearly this team's fourth best player. For a lot of this year, I thought that he was their third best player when I was not quite as convinced by Aiton's performance consistently. But game two was one of the best games of Bridges' career. Like, you do not see him explode for 27 points very often. He did it once this entire regular season, and then he goes out there and does it in game two of the finals. And what was so much fun about it is, it's not like it was one of those games where a role guy steps up and they knock down seven or eight threes, and that's how they have their impact. I mean, he was three of nine from deep, but it was inside of the arc. It was in the mid-range area where he is so improved. It was getting to the line. He finishes with 27 and seven, obviously an impactful defender always. That was an amazing, amazing game from him and the kind of game that when your team wins the title... People remember for a very long time, Gabe Swartz posed the question, friend of the show, Gabe Swartz, is he the next Iguodala? No, because they're very different. They're somewhat different in how they play. I don't need to get into all the nuanced differences, but Iggy, part of what makes him so special is the cerebral playmaking 
and the ability to be a facilitator in stretches. With McHale, it's a little more straightforward for the most part. It's the shooting, the cutting, the defense. But getting his shot for himself like that changed game two and was massive to their victory. And then when it comes to Jay Crowder, he's as hot and cold as they come. Like, I think it's very fitting that he had a disastrous performance on the offensive end in game one, where he puts up one point on 0 of 8 shooting. And then, since then, we see him go 3 of 5 from deep in game two, and 6 of 7, even in a loss in game three, putting up 18 points there. Jay is fascinating to me, but the reason I think he has the potential to be a hero always is because he is fearless. He is utterly fearless, as is Bridges, as is Cam Johnson, and those are the kind of guys who can make an impact, and obviously also Crowder defensively will be a plus, and you know can make some smart decisions, although he can also make some dumb decisions. When he starts feeling himself a little too much, it gets scary, but you know what? Sometimes those are the guys who win you the game. Sometimes the people who are a little too confident in themselves, so they'll put up those big shots, are the ones who really matter. And so I think all three of those guys can have their names etched in history books and be somewhat immortalized because they have the mindset and the skill set to do so. And we've said this before, but as I look up and down Milwaukee's roster, I just don't see as many of those guys. Yeah, and I mean, it's the prototypical difference maker that you want in the league to get today. A guy that can hit threes and play defense. Uh, I gave Jay Crowder uh, the Smoke and Jay Award just because Hot and cold, bro. Like you said, 0-8 in the first game, 6-7 in the third one. He didn't miss a shot after the first quarter. He kind of took like a he took like a heat check three with Drew Holiday on him, and then he didn't miss the rest of the way. It just felt like everything was going in for him, and it was. Um, I want to ask about another guy uh, that I'm going to give a award in this Suns rotation. Do you think Torrey Craig uh, has got a little bit of that playoff hero in him? Like, uh, look, man, he's not as impactfully... He's not as impactful offensively. He, he never really is. Like, he can do things. He's a decent cutter. When his shot's going, he can do that. He's a good dunker. Like, I've just been so impressed with him defensively in this series, man. Uh, the What was it? He, uh, he, took a, um, he took a charge from, I want to say, uh, who was it? Was it Middleton? Somebody uh, in the third game. But it, it, it wasn't just that. That was an impressive play. But he's also been, uh, he just gets into lanes. He's... He's gritty. He fits this Suns roster really well. And honestly, bro, I'm not going to lie. I think he's a guy that Milwaukee misses. He's a he's a really valuable piece to have just in your rotation, just his depth. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, man. Uh, depth is a big reason why the Suns are here. They're, it's still the biggest reason why I think they win these finals. But Craig's a valuable piece, and he is a dog defensively. Um, the Suns have just got a lot of those guys. But uh, Craig's another guy that I think can step up and play a bigger role uh, the rest of the way. I love Tory. The only reason I don't think he's quite as much in that immortalized hero conversation, well, part of it is just the minute distribution. And then the other part is that because he's so sketchy as a shooter and like Crowder's inconsistent, but Crowder's also going to get a ton of cracks at it. Tory Craig might only have two or three triples in a game. And I don't know. He's a career 33% shooter from there, but absolutely a good basketball player and a guy who I think everybody should want on their team. And I agree with you. When it comes to Milwaukee, like he's a guy who could make guarding that pick and roll a lot easier. He's a guy who you could give some of those real minutes in those small ball lineups. And when he's knocking down shots, a phenomenal basketball player. It's just that's always the trade-off with him is you don't know when they're going to fall versus when he's going to be a little bit more off. But yeah, I'm all on the Torrey Craig train. I think he's been a good basketball player. But I've been more impressed with him in this postseason than I was 
even last year for the Nuggets. I just maybe keyed in a little bit more on some of his shooting inconsistencies last year, whereas in the playoffs, not that many attempts, but he's been 41% from deep for the Suns and has had some big plays beyond just spotting up on the offensive end and defensively, obviously, has been pretty darn good given the expectations. I'll broaden things out here a little bit for my last official award. And then if you have any more, we can do that. And other than that, we can get into a little bit of general discussion about this series. This is related to something we talked about last episode, which was the uniqueness of this finals in that it had the chance to establish something of an era of parity in the NBA that wasn't there just because there was a lack of great teams. Like it's not like the late seventies NBA. It could be a new type of parody where we have a number of contenders and you don't know who's going to win it every year. And again, I don't know if that's how it's going to be going forward because super teams are not going away. The Nets are coming back healthy. The Lakers will reload, but parody wins. And that is the name of the award for these finals, because we are going to have no matter what three new champs in three years. And what I mean by that is three teams that are not defending a title or didn't win just a couple years before. And that's only happened three times since 1960. There was 2014 through 2016 with the Spurs, the Warriors, and the Cavs. You could even argue if you wanted that that Spurs team wasn't really a new champion because some of the core pieces had been there for, you know, a decade and a half. I'll give it to them, though, because they hadn't won since 07, and that was definitely a reshaped core in some ways. Their finals MVP was obviously a piece who hadn't been there for any of the previous runs in Kawhi Leonard. But that's one instance, and obviously the Warriors and Cavs, not exactly an era of parody because they played each other four straight times. The Spurs had been to -to back-to-back finals at this point. So that doesn't even really compare as far as reflecting parody. And then the other two are 77 to 79. Again, that era where it was just kind of a lack of great teams. The Blazers, truly a great team, but they were taken out of the picture after a year. And then the Bullets and the Sonics. And then you have 70 to 72 Knicks, Bucks, Lakers. Three great teams who just happen to all kind of have their uh, moment of opportunity in that same three-year stretch. So I just think that's interesting because what we're about to see has only happened four times in 60 years. And it's an interesting sort of way to encapsulate this season and how it all went down at the end because it's definitely a unique one. So with that, let me just ask you this. I think these finals have been pretty fun through three games. Would you say they're living up to your expectations overall as far as just your enjoyment and the quality of basketball and all of that? Yeah, um, the first two games were definitely more entertaining. I didn't like watching the Bucks run away with it in Game 3, but no, it's mm-hmm. exactly what I expected. It's going to be gritty. Buckets are tough to get in this series. I mean, it's the only guy getting easy, consistent buckets is Giannis when the Suns are running that small ball lineup. Like, everybody mm-hmm. else is scrapping. you either got to be knocking down your open threes or CP3 and Book have to make tough shots. Middleton and Holiday have to make tough shots. Guys are playing... I just wanted a gritty, competitive series, and yes, this is exactly what we've gotten. I've been immensely satisfied, and even more so to your point, Carson, that the parody that we've gotten that I just love that I had <laughs> I had no faith in the Suns or the Bucks to get here at all. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad that we're getting it, that it's something new, that it's something different. Um, what about you? Like, is this, are you entertained? Oh, 100%. And I don't understand why... After games one and two, everybody was like, oh, this series is over. The Bucs are so clearly outmatched. I never felt that way. Like, 
if Middleton and Holiday had been better, they easily could have won either one of those games. They were both mostly competitive. Like, yeah, the Bucks didn't get it down to a one-possession game or anything, but they were within striking distance for the majority of the time, even though they were off shooting in game two, I guess, was their more off shooting night. But I think this is really fun. I don't think this series is over at all. I think we're still going six or seven. And some of the really most fun parts to me have centered around a Milwaukee team that historically I have not been a huge fan of. Like Giannis is playing his best basketball ever. That's really special stuff. And in the biggest stage with the biggest challenge of his career on his plate, he is knocking it out of the park. And I talked about how he had had shortcomings previously, but like I'll give some numbers to contextualize that. If you look at the last two times the Bucks were eliminated, 2019, when they were the one seed against Toronto, he puts up 22.7 on 44.8% from the field, 33% from deep, and they lose that series in six games. He really, really struggled. Against the Heat last year, he was 22-11 and 11 on 50% from the field, was 21% from three, like just didn't have a massive impact in that series like you would have expected, and then gets injured, doesn't even get to play in the final game of that series. And this year, it's just completely different. Like he has set in this series... His scoring high for any playoff series, he's got a top three rebounding number, his playmaking has been pretty good, his decision-making has been great, so like, I just think that's awesome. That, to me, is a great moment for a guy who I've always had questions about in this stage. He's crushing it, and I will say, we are going to get answers about a couple other guys who I have questions about. I am looking Chris Middleton dead in the face here, because I just made a video about how weird he is, how hot and cold he is, how brilliant he is at his best moments, how inconsistent he is, though, at his worst. This is it, man. Like, for Middleton, fair or not, when you have such a sketchy track record in big moments, when you have shot below 40% from the field in the majority of your complete postseasons up to this point, and you have had some really ugly moments in the clutch and in those elimination series where your team has gone down and needed you, I can only give you so many chances. This is the chance for him. Game two was like, there's Chris Middleton again. Game three, he was okay, He didn't like blow me away or anything though. So I'm ready to get an answer about him because I still don't know what to expect. We touched on this earlier. I don't trust him. I don't trust Drew to be elite offensively, but this is the time that we get answers on what those guys can actually be because this is the stage that matters in their careers. Neither of them have ever played basketball nearly this meaningful before and who knows if they will again. So this is kind of the ultimate test for them. I feel like we should give a little bit more shine to Chris Paul here. Because kind of all the Chris Paul talk that we really did in this one was me talking about how he could have helped his buddy out a little better. But what do you think about his performance right now and what it means for his legacy? Because he's been pretty, pretty great again. No, I mean, I don't have any, like other than what you highlighted in the D-book minutes where he has to play off ball. uh, I don't really have any criticisms of CP3's game. This is about as perfect as I think he could have played. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. He's knocking down difficult shots at the elbow. He is aggressive trying to find those shots, and he's doing it against some of the best perimeter defenders in the league. Like, Giannis is not afraid to come out there and get him, and that's a tough matchup to draw. When Drew Holiday switches mm-hmm. onto him, that's a tough matchup to draw, and it doesn't matter who the Bucks are throwing at him. Um, I want to ask you, Carson, uh, here. I want to hear, uh, do you have anything else to add about uh, CP3? Because i got another Bucks question for you. I'm just really fascinated by how different playoff Chris Paul is than regular season Chris Paul. Just like 
how much more of a score-first player he becomes, not in that he is some overwhelming score-first player, but more just in that he is so far from that in the regular season. And it's like you could complain about how at times he's a little bit too passive and like doesn't take over enough. And that obviously has not been the case in these playoffs. I think that one interesting stat is that he's making a few less passes per game. That kind of feels right to me. But again, that's just a slight shift in the mindset. But no, I'm not going to sit here and criticize CP. In fact, I feel like I should give him some gushing praise to overshadow the fact that I have criticized him because this is incredible basketball. Like he is unstoppable as a scorer right now. He does not miss from the mid-range, all right? I said that he misses last episode. I think I was wrong. I actually don't think that he ever does. I've never seen it. And maybe people can't gush about his turnover his assist to turnover ratio right now because he hasn't been as outstandingly sharp there. But man, it's just great to see because he's never been an underperformer, as we said. He's never been a choker. He's just a guy who hasn't had the right opportunity to strike. And now that he has, he is really excelling and knocking it out of the park. With what you saw uh, from Milwaukee and how they changed their rotation, uh, you know, opting a little out, you know, a little less from Brooke, a little more on Pat and Bobby Portis. Did they make the right call? Like, do you think they should continue to take Brooks minutes away? Do you give them more to Portis, to Connaughton? Like, what should the rotation look like uh, for Milwaukee and their dilemma with playing with Brooke Lopez? I think you write it out. You know, you can't isolate the factors here, but you just saw the roughest collective game from CP and Book, and uh, most of that is on Book. But again, you didn't see absolute pretty, beautiful, perfect basketball from CP for 48 minutes a game too. So to me, take the biggest liability in that matchup off the floor. And we talked about how they could make it work. We talked about how there's a trade-off because of what Brooke does offensively. But I'm loving Giannis at the five. They're quick. They're versatile. They can't get punished anywhere defensively if they're playing their five best guys there. And so I like Brooke. I'm kind of bummed that he isn't going to get to play 33 minutes a game in this series because he is one of their best players and he's going to be down closer to that 24-25 range. If they find a way to win, it'll be weird how he's remembered in this series and as a player. Like, he's just had an interesting arc throughout it all. But I think that they've made the right call. I think Giannis at the five is the way to go the majority of the time. And then when Aiton isn't out there, yeah, put Brooke out there, let him go to work, let him try to do some damage on the offensive end and he can play good defense in that matchup. I think if you struggle again, you can turn back to him, but like you know what they're going to do. They're going to go at him every single time out of the pick and roll, and maybe he can play it better. Maybe he can get up in their faces. Maybe he can affect those shots, but he was not so successful when he was out there for big minutes. Who do you like more in the starting lineup defensively with Giannis at the five? Uh, would you run Connaughton and Portis, or are you running Connaughton and Tucker? Portis and Tucker, Like, what do you think is the best defensive five for Milwaukee? I like Connaughton and Tucker because as we touched on last episode, to me, if Portis is out there, there's still a defensive liability on the perimeter. There's still a guy they can go after and hunt. I want nobody who can be hunted. Nobody. I want Milwaukee buttoned up defensively and dealing with this really tough matchup as well as they possibly can. What do you think? Do you agree overall? I like Bobby Portis, and I think he's moderately switchable, but when D... When... <laughs> Anytime Booker and Paul get that switch, you can see them licking their chops because they know they are about to go at him. Mm -hmm. um, so then on that, I want to ask, because I thought, I don't know, man, I thought the Suns' offense did look a little bit different in Game 3. I, 
I think they tried to push the tempo a little too much and got themselves into mm. trouble with turnovers, just trying to, I don't know, man, trying to just trying to do too much all at once. Mm-hmm. But I also just thought they got a little away from ball movement. Do you think that's an issue moving forward? Do you think, like, I don't know, like, I just think we need to see more ball movement out of the Suns. I think they tried to do a little too much out of the pick and roll and relied a little bit too much on it. And I don't know, it's like they just thought they were going to get easy offense every trip down. And when Book's not knocking down those tough shots, that's not going to happen. I guess what I'm asking, do you think we need to see more involvement with the other guys and less pick and roll? I think that that would be tough to say because when it's not working... You think, oh, this is kind of weird basketball. Like two guys are just doing this the whole time, and particularly Chris Paul, every possession is pick and roll, and like nobody else is really creating all that much when they're out on the floor. It's weird, but it works, and it's worked throughout the playoffs. So to me, we would have to see it fail on them a little bit more. Like I agree, they need to have counters, and that's one thing about the Suns is they're not a good team playing from behind because, as you mentioned, they don't like to play fast. They don't like to bomb away from three. And this was a game where they didn't shoot well from beyond the arc. They were nine of 31. They still shot well inside the arc, but they have 14 turnovers. Not a terrible number, but not a great number. So yeah, that's not a spot that they want to be in. They like to be in control. And when they are, when things are going well, I think you can look at that and say, man, CP and book out of the pick and roll are really tough to stop. And then when the situation changes, sometimes you can criticize it. But I will say, I I get what you're saying. Like, it feels weird to me sometimes. And that's part of my thing with Book is I want to see him involved in more different ways. So I don't know. There's a trade-off. But again, I don't think we can sit here and say the Suns shouldn't do what they have done with such success. Because like, I don't think they're relying on it more than they did in previous series. Do you? I feel like this is just how they've played and they had a rough game. No, I thought it was just a rough game, but... It's just head-scratching when it's off because I kept waiting mm-hmm. for them to change yeah. something, move the ball around the arc, get it to other guys, and they just didn't. They uh, they kind of sunk with the ship, but that's what you got to do. And you're right. It's been, it's been consistent all season long. There's no reason to turn away from it now. But when it's not working, yeah, it's just you just wonder. Yeah, I agree. And uh, they have guys who can make shots. That's the privileges. Even though they don't turn beyond the arc a ton in the scope of things, They do have guys who I trust in most spots to step up, and as long as Book and CP are creating those looks, they shouldn't always have to be just perfect themselves. Sometimes the guys around them can pick up the slack, and Mikhail did it off the bounce. Campaign can do it off the bounce. Cam Johnson a little bit off the bounce, and all those guys can shoot the ball. So I do think that there is reason to believe that they will get better offensively and they won't have a repeat of Game 3, although this series is a grind. Nobody is just cruising to great offense as we expected. These were offenses that were in the bottom half of playoff units coming into this series, but these were the top two defenses, and that feels about right with how this series has played out for the most part. There's been some good offense, there's been some good defense, and all around just been some pretty darn good basketball. Do you have any other thoughts on this before maybe we check back in with our predictions, see if we have any revisions to make if we want to stay the same? Oh, no, I'm ready to go. All right. You're, you seem excited. Are you going to change something here? No, but I wanted you to think that. I'm still sticking Suns in seven. Um, my prediction for the next game, like I said, in Milwaukee, I think they tied the series up. I think it's just hard to play on the road in the finals. I think mm-hmm. these fans are going to be an issue. And, uh, and I question about these refs and their calls. Look, bro, I don't like pointing the finger, but I just thought we saw a lot of Giannis, a little too much of Giannis at the line. I know that's his game. I know he's good at drawing fouls. 
I like physical basketball, though, and I want to see a little bit less of the whistle. So I'm sticking Suns in seven. I think this stays uber competitive. I think the Bucks even this series up, and then we head back to Phoenix, and we go the full distance. Um, but I'm going to stick with the more reliable offense, and I think that if if the Suns follow the recipe, they play eight and in minutes with Giannis, and they keep relying on CP3 and Book and out of the pick and roll, I think they win this series. But like you said, this is going to be a grind. This is going to be rigorous. It's going to be a it's going to be a battle. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm sticking with Phoenix. I'm going to stick with the Suns in seven as well. I kind of feel like where I was before the series, where I almost want to go Suns in six and a half because I don't really see the Bucks winning, but I definitely don't see the Suns cruising. And the main reason for that is just they don't rep they don't create that seamless offense consistently enough. The Bucks don't always either, but when the Bucks are on, when Giannis is on like this, when Middleton's on, when Holiday, I do think they have a higher offensive ceiling than the Suns do. I mean, they were a better statistical offense in the regular season. And uh, yeah, I just think because of the transition, the shooting, and the big three, as opposed to Phoenix's big two, they can get clicking at a little higher level. They just don't get there nearly as consistently as the tandem of CP and Book does. I did just think of one point, not a big point at all, but related to what we were talking about with the ball movement, that incredible Suns passing possession could easily have gone down as a low light because there were a couple of pretty open shots that got passed up on there. Crowder's pass to book got batted down and then he got it back. All I'm saying is we live in a world where we judge things by results, but that could have gone the other way. I loved it though. I love seeing guys pass the ball. Of course, it's one of the best parts of the game and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was also a lot of fun. uh, Like you said, watching Cam Johnson baptize PJ Tucker. Oh, that was an absolute blast indeed. So here we are, Logan. We're almost halfway through it. It's been a lot of fun thus far. I think we can both agree on that. It's been unique. It's been new. It's been fresh. And I'm really excited to see how it plays out down the stretch and see who ends up cementing their legacy and having their names in the history books on the right side of this forever. Because again, we are now in the stage of the season where history is made. And that's always kind of a surreal feeling, but a ton of fun, no doubt. So That will do it for us here today. If you enjoyed the podcast, you want a little bit more Nerd Sesh content, you can check us out on YouTube. Maybe you're already here, but you can see that I've been doing some video breakdowns throughout the summer. I just did one on Chris Middleton and his inconsistency, his weirdness as a player, why that is the case. You can go and check that out. Hopefully, we'll be coming up with another one soon enough. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh, on Instagram at nerd sesh, on TikTok at NerdSesh, where Logan has been doing some content, and I will get started there soon. Uh, You can hold me to that if you are listening at this point. Maybe you just want to listen to the podcast, though. You're already doing it, so you've done a great job of getting to here, but you can find us only in audio form on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your audio content, or you can watch the video on YouTube. And with that, as always, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was NerdSesh. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.